This is God's word. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built I am breaking down, and what I have planted, I am plucking up, that is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. This far in God's word. The man Jeremiah such a big success. He, he can have the effect of intimidating us rather than motivating us as we study the big guy, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a big name in Scripture. He's a big name still down to today around the world. A, a zealous and faithful person influencing the temple, the nation, and even all nations around the world. The big Jeremiah. Uh, most of us don't live on the level of Jeremiah. I'm no Sproul. I'm no Ferguson. I'm I'm no James Montgomery Boyce. I'm a little guy. You might not be a CEO. You might not be the top salesperson. You might not be the go-to doctor. But we are in God's kingdom. What does this chapter have to say to us little people? Uh, Chapter 45 is not about Jeremiah. It's about who again? It's about Baruch, some guy named Baruch. Baruch is not familiar to us, and that's part of the point. He's a little guy like us, and this, uh, there's a book of Jeremiah, did you know? And there's no book of Baruch. <laughs> there's no equal, similar book by him and about him. We know little about Baruch. He, he was called by God to work with Jeremiah and to support Jeremiah, like Luther had Melanchthon and Batman had Robin, so Jeremiah had Baruch. Uh, He only appears in the book of Jeremiah four times, and he appears nowhere else in the Bible. So if you haven't studied it here, you're very unfamiliar with Baruch. Yet we owe to Baruch the fact that we have the book of Jeremiah at all in our Bibles. Chapter 45 is a story about God giving an attitude adjustment and encouragement to a little person, Baruch. It happens throughout the Bible. One quick example, when uh, Jesus was ministering, there were some unimportant people who served him. In Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, you could read about them. There are women who had been healed of sicknesses and even evil spirits. And God used their faithful service to Jesus to help spread God's word. And it's the same with Baruch. God used Baruch in his faithful service to God and to Jeremiah to help spread God's word in a very important time in Jeremiah's life. So the main point as it's printed there, the Lord provided a lesson through a flashback of the scribe named Baruch as his younger, lamenting self. This is a teaching lesson to the readers like us. So chapter 45 is a flashback. That's why you see the title of the message, Flashback to My Younger Lament. It's an earlier time in the life of Baruch. Why a flashback here? Well, the book of Jeremiah is organized topically, as you know by now. And now that Jeremiah's last words in chapter 44 
have been presented, we now hear from the scribe, Baruch. So we'll see three points, the appearances in order. I'm going to take you back through the quick history of all the appearances of Baruch, so we know everything set in front of us today. And then secondly, the lament of the scribe Baruch, and thirdly, God's answer to his lament. So we'll dig into these actual verses. So before we get to the verses, let me give you a history of Baruch within the pages of Jeremiah. First, the reading in the temple. If you remember from chapter 36... We're suddenly back to that same year when Baruch helped the prophet Jeremiah to write a scroll to read before the king in the temple of God. And Baruch was burdened about his task. Now, we remember the grief and burden of Jeremiah on that day, but we have never heard about the grief and burden of Baruch until now. Chapter 45 out of 52 chapters, really close to the end, we're now hearing about the grief and burden of Baruch. I think of it like a lot of great painters, when they paint a piece of art, will paint themselves into the picture somewhere, like maybe a reflection on a doorknob, or you have to look for it, and if you're in the art world, you can find these self-portraits within a painting of the painter. And the same way I think of this here as Baruch signing the book that he completed. He's showing up in the book here with... God's direction and Jeremiah's approval, of course. But we need to remember that as we study chapter 45 and as we do a flashback in time to the scene, the scene in chapter 36, going back there now, we have to adjust our thinking a bit. Remember what was happening. Uh, the judgment of God was to come upon the city of Jerusalem, upon the whole country for that matter of Judah. And in that context, it makes more sense that here God is rebuking the scribe Baruch for his own ambitions. We'll say more about that in a moment. But we also need to remember as we flash back that the king burned the scroll. Remember that? He read the scroll, or he had Baruch read the scroll to him, and then he would cut a piece off of it and throw it in the fire. Cut the next piece off, throw it into the fire. So the whole scroll of the word of God of Jeremiah, handwritten by whom? By this fellow Baruch, being cut into shreds in front of him and literally going up in flames. None of us stopped during chapter 36 study to consider Baruch. Have you ever lost a document on a computer? And you stand up from the computer and you storm around the office or you storm around your home office and you tell everybody there that you just lost this document that you spend good two and a half hours working on. And here's Baruch who wrote by hand the entire scroll of the book of Jeremiah up to that point. And Baruch says to you, yeah, don't get me started. You haven't had a loss compared to what Jeremiah experienced, and we never thought of that. Poor Baruch is watching it being cut and thrown into the fire. Also, as we have this flashback to chapter 36, it makes sense that God would now focus Baruch on survival. Listen, you're going to get out of this alive, is basically what God will say when we get to verse 5. It makes more sense when you see the context of where we were. This flashback is so important for us to understand this chapter. If the king would ignore Jeremiah and burn the scroll of God, what do you suppose the king might be capable of doing to Baruch? It's valid for him to be concerned about losing his life, right? And also, an enemy army is prophesied to be coming to destroy the entire city. Who's to say Baruch will survive that? So on two counts, it seems right for Baruch to be concerned about his life, and it seems appropriate for God to assure him that he gets out alive. So we're studying a flashback 
of a time earlier when Baruch was younger, when he was lamenting a proper and godly lament, and yet a lament that has some aspects of sin in it, and when God promised to spare his life many years earlier. Well, because it happens now, in chapter 45, close to the end of our study, we already know the answer, that God has fulfilled this promise. Jeremiah did survive. And sure enough, God fulfilled his promise and spared the life of Baruch. That fact encourages us to believe that God will fulfill all of his promises, which, of course, he does and will do. So chapter 45 is connected to chapter 36. Both dated the same year. Both have to do with this fellow Baruch. Both refer to the writing of the scroll of Jeremiah. They function like bookends. If you imagine good old-fashioned books lined up, you have those things we call bookends on the left and the right to hold the books up. It's like that in these chapters. Chapter 36 started to tell us something, and then we have a bunch of story. And then chapter 45 comes on the other end to take us back to the beginning and tell us something else about that same day. What was reported in chapters 37 to 44 in between? A lot. Just to quickly summarize, we covered the actual attack and fall of Jerusalem, the resulting chaos, the group that ran away to Egypt, and the final events and final words of Jeremiah's life. There's a lot in between our bookends from chapter 36 to chapter 45. But because of the placement of chapter 45 here, after Jeremiah's last words in chapter 44, It shows us that the faithful sidekick Baruch was with Jeremiah the whole time. And those of you who've fallen in love with Jeremiah along with me as we've studied, aren't you thankful? Doesn't it make your heart warm towards Baruch that he was right with Jeremiah the whole time? I thank God for that. The date here is significant. We see it in chapter 45, verse 1. Let me just explain to the children this word dictation means that one person speaks out loud and the other person writes down what was said. That's what dictation is. So I'm going to read verse 1 again. Listen for the date. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch the son of Neriah when Baruch wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. So that's verse 1. So again, the date is significant. The fourth year of Jehoiakim was the year 605 B.C. And we know that that was the year that the enemy king of Babylon was stunningly defeated. He stunningly defeated Egypt at the famous Battle of Carchemish, paving the way for Babylon to be the dominant force in the region, including overtake Jerusalem and Judah. So it's like Babylon wins. Who's going to win, Babylon or Egypt? Babylon wins. That's the huge moment, 605 B.C. It was the same year that King Jehoiakim rejected the word of God, leading to the destruction of Jerusalem. I just explained it. Cutting the scroll, putting it in the fire. That's a significant moment. When the king rejects the word of God to the extent of cutting it and putting it in the fire, we're reaching a new level of hardness. The date is significant because it's when everything changed. Everything turned. It was the beginning of the end. There was a big downturn that led to big consequences for the end of The city, the end of the nation, ultimately the end of Jeremiah. So now that we're reaching the end, chapter 45, Baruch takes us back to that moment, that launch point, and shares with us another vantage point of it. It's like another camera angle, a glimpse of what it all meant back then from the perspective now of Baruch, who was there as an eyewitness. It's pretty cool. So then point B Second, 
we go to the purchasing of the fields. The second time chronologically that Baruch appears in the book of Jeremiah, out of four, the second out of four, is 17 years later. Don't be confused that we're going back now to chapter 32. This was a time when Jeremiah was told by God to buy a field. Remember that? How did that impact Baruch? Now, uh, 17 years later, Baruch is still serving Jeremiah, but at that time now, Jeremiah is imprisoned, confined to house arrest in the courtyard of the guard, which was joined to the palace compound, so he couldn't deal with the sale of real estate. He had Baruch help him. It's during the final months of the attack on Jerusalem. Jeremiah is imprisoned. Baruch is not imprisoned. So what's Baruch doing? Faithful and meticulous as ever, Baruch served like an attorney for Jeremiah, drafting all the legal documents and formalities necessary in order to close on a piece of property. Jeremiah was buying the field from his cousin Hanamel, if you remember that, and it was Baruch who ensured that the official deed was carefully stored for posterity, even though a war was coming. It's supposed to dawn on us that it's not exactly comfortable for Baruch to appear into the courthouse repeatedly as the attorney of the unpopular prophet Jeremiah in order to take care of paperwork. But Baruch was faithful in the tasks, and we realize now that too was a grief to him. They're stacking up the griefs in in Baruch's life. And our third one, now point C, dragged away into Egypt. The third time we find Baruch popping up in the book of Jeremiah was chapter 43. This was after the fall of the city and the subsequent chaos. A group decided to run away to Egypt. They're taking Jeremiah with them out of the country. Where does that leave Baruch? (laughs) They dragged Baruch into Egypt also. If you're going to take Jeremiah, might as well take his sidekick, Baruch. Jeremiah's scribe, Jeremiah's sidekick, Jeremiah's attorney, Jeremiah's friend, Baruch, was taken off into Egypt right along with Jeremiah. We don't know what happened to Baruch, ultimately. We're about to study the fourth text, uh, the fourth time, the only other time that Baruch appears in the book in our rest of our message today in chapter 45. But before we get there, I just want you to think about this, that we don't know what happened to Baruch. Either he died in Egypt, where we believe that Jeremiah died, or else, after Jeremiah died in Egypt, Baruch was freed up and enabled to travel and traveled to Babylon and joined the rest of the exiles. I think that's what happened because his brother Sariah was already one of the exiles in Babylon. Baruch might have had the connections and ability to get there. He was a supporter earlier of the pro-Babylonian policy and a member of a high-ranking family, as I'll talk more about in a moment. So Baruch could expect a friendly reception if he did make it to Babylon. And it might explain this. This is the core of my thought process. It would explain how the scroll of the book of Jeremiah that was rewritten got to the exiles in Babylon if Baruch himself was the one who brought it there so that they could read it. Well, that's all we have. In the entire Bible on Baruch, you now have the the cliff notes, the quick version of everything about Baruch We're ready to study the the lament, point two. Verse one, we saw Baruch now, as you list his family lineage in verse one, if you catch this, he's the son of Neriah. That was a powerful family. They they had connections with the government. Baruch's grandfather, uh, Messiah, had been governor of Jerusalem. Baruch's brother, Sariah, was a staff officer of the king's royal family. Baruch would have had access to inner government committees meeting in the temple complex and in the royal palace. Baruch was also himself a highly educated man and a professional scribe. Despite all of that, 
Baruch had decided to put his skills at the service of this unpopular prophet Jeremiah. Perhaps he, he thought well of the appointment at the time and was honored to do it at the start. It means that the family probably lined up with Jeremiah and wanted the people to listen to Jeremiah. They wanted the people to repent and clean up everything, stop all the sin and make things right, and to accept God's plan then of exile in Babylon. Once the judgment would come, they should submit to God's plan and go ahead with the exile and be part of it as the way of salvation from their sins. So Baruch is probably favorable, along with his whole family. He's from a family that was loyal to God, a family that he himself was loyal to God and to Jeremiah and to Jeremiah's message. Baruch seems to be something of a model in his devotion to God and in his work. As a scribe or official document secretary, he was accurate, hardworking, and reliable despite a very charged environment, Jeremiah versus the leaders. He was required to work in that environment, and he had courage to put himself at risk of opposition, attack, injury, or worse, by publicly reading the entire scroll. Imagine what he was reading. He stood in the temple and he read 23 years worth of Jeremiah's public statements of confronting the the whole country about their sins. He read that all at once. The things that Jeremiah previously had preached audibly, now Baruch was reading from the scroll a secondary time to repeat it. The commitment involved in the personal sacrifice cost for Baruch would have been immense. And then we go to verse 2. This is one of only two places in the whole book of Jeremiah in which Jeremiah gave a word from the Lord not to a group, but to a single individual person. Baruch represents others, and so of course the lesson spills over to us as well, but it's addressed initially to a single person, Baruch. It's those who stood with Jeremiah who hear this over the shoulder of Baruch. It's those of us who stand with the Lord and his word who hear this over the shoulder of Baruch, but initially you have to understand its context is initially addressed to Baruch. So verse 3, Baruch had suffered right alongside Jeremiah. It's not surprising that Baruch's lament echoes the laments we've heard from Jeremiah himself, his master. Baruch was suffering. We've never really focused on this before. We have one quote of what Baruch said, and here it is in verse 3. Let me read it now. Woe is me! (laughs) For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. My sorrow, my pain, my weariness, my groaning, my lack of rest. It's a little selfish, but that's what pain does. It brings us into ourselves. He's suffering, and he's coming apart. Baruch is sorrowful. For the same reason Jeremiah had been sorrowful. What made Jeremiah sorrowful? Remember, what makes the weeping prophet weep? It was the spiritual condition of the people and how they just won't turn and how God's judgment, therefore, is justified in coming. The content of the chapters that Jeremiah preached and that Baruch wrote down were awful to contemplate. We've gone through them ourselves in these last months. Not only did Baruch hear the sermons the first time around as Jeremiah preached them, but he also later wrote them all down. And then later, he had to read them all out, out loud, at once, in the temple, all together. Imagine the accumulating, compounding effect, the filling of the ears and heart and mind of Baruch, and what a crescendo moment of considering the doom and destruction as he read this out officially, 
on behalf of God and his prophet Jeremiah to the leaders and to the country as a whole. And every day Baruch was reminded of the ugliness of the sin of sinners. He belonged to them. He was a fellow citizen with people who were defying God, breaking his covenant, spiraling downward in wickedness and corruption. Yeah, he's suffering. If you want to understand verse 3, and the sorrow, pain, weariness, and groaning that gave no rest to Baruch, just take an opportunity. Maybe you could do it this afternoon. Chapters 1 through 25, read them all at one sitting. And put yourself there, because it's an unrelenting message. And imagine that all out, written out by hand, line by line, pen and ink, day after day, for as many days as it takes to complete the task. And when we read Jeremiah, we read ancient history. It's hard for me to even conjure it all up and explain to you the context of what's happening in the world around there. We read it like ancient history, but when Baruch read it, it was statements about his family, himself, his people, his times, and his own immediate future, whether or not he's even going to live. Baruch was hearing the voice of God speaking through his friend Jeremiah, and he knew it was all true. Baruch's job was to carefully write it all down and then read it out loud in the temple, and there's no escape for the coming judgment. Now we're starting to understand the groaning of Baruch. There's some real good reasons for it. And there's a little bit of Baruch needing correction in it. So we get to God's answer, point three. God's answer to the scribe named Baruch. Now you've got to start out wondering what's happening. In verse four, God's answer to Baruch seems oddly irrelevant to what Baruch has just said in verse three. His lament in verse three is so clear. But then God says something in verse four that doesn't seem to connect until... It dawns on us. It leaps out us all of a sudden. What God is doing and bringing judgment is deeply painful to God himself. God is first of all saying to Baruch, you think you're upset about the spiritual condition of the people. How about from my perspective, Baruch, is the first thing God seems to be saying. Since Jeremiah is groaning about the sin and fall of Jerusalem and Baruch but Baruch was groaning about the fall and sin of Jerusalem. What must have been God's reaction? There's a hint of it here in verse 4, of what it meant for God himself to be destroying his own Jerusalem, his own Judah. Imagine destroying on a vast scale something that you built, something that you worked decades, no, centuries on. And that is what God did. So back when all this groaning was happening in Baruch, we're now finding out what God told Jeremiah to say to Baruch on that day. Verse 4, let me read verse 4. Thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down, says God. What I have planted, I am plucking up, says God. That is, the whole land. These words run along the lines of echoing Jeremiah's original call. You might remember that, Jeremiah 1, verse 10. Building up, plucking, planting, that language. God is now tearing down what he had built up. These words condense a thousand years of God's patient building of his people. Building of a nation. It used to be a sole family of Abraham. And God turned it into a great nation. They had a temple. They had everything all set up. It's heartbreaking to lose what's precious to us that in which we've invested our hearts. And we are called on in verse 4 here to imagine God watching from heaven as his people who he spent a thousand years building up are coming undone. You think you're grieving about your country? 
You think you're grieving about your family, your people, the church? God is looking upon Jerusalem and all of Judah, and he's coming not just with wrath, he's coming with grief. We're called on to imagine the heart of God watching the destruction of a vineyard which he had planted. His wrath comes at the cost of God's pain and God's tears. Verse 5 is the next part of God's answer to Baruch. In contrast to what God has to do, then God turns back to Baruch's lament and he says, in comparison to me, now let's see what you're doing. Verse 5, and do you seek great things for yourself? What God is saying to Baruch here is that part of what you're lamenting about is that you don't have the opportunities you had thought of for yourself. And so his answer in verse 5 is, seek them not. For behold, I'm bringing disaster upon all flesh. Consider the context. Baruch, God is saying to him, but I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. That's the end of verse 5. That's the end of our passage. God's pain is brought out here. God's tears are compared to Baruch's tears here. Do you seek great things for yourself? He confronts Baruch. Baruch was tired of being a word processor for the unpopular prophet. Maybe initially, Baruch was honored to be called to serve as a personal scribe to the great Jeremiah. It seems Baruch had become disillusioned. God said Baruch had a hankering after some more significant place, maybe somewhere in the corridors of power, perhaps in national politics. His his family was right up in the mix. He he, he could take a different position. Baruch wanted something bigger. We want something else. We want something else. I mean, Baruch is interested in something bigger and better. It's not that all ambition is wrong. Ambition in line with the will of God is godly ambition. But personal career ambition in Jerusalem at the time in which Baruch was living is silly and foolish. It's as foolish as if you were on board of the Titanic after it hit the iceberg and you now apply for a promotion. What are you thinking, Baruch? that you want your career to go differently when the entire city is about to be destroyed. Are you even tracking with this, Baruch, God is saying to him? What are your thought processes like? You don't have any long-term prospects. The whole city is coming down. He's like, seek them not. You seek great things for yourself, seek them not. Baruch wanted to advance his career and maybe started to regret the assignment to work with Jeremiah. God's answer is the next three words. What about those career goals? What about those great things you're seeking for yourself, Baruch? Seek them not. Why? Because he's living in the context of coming judgment of the holy God against sin. Well, what should Baruch do then? Trust in God's promise of blessing just as much as he trusted in God's promise of judgment. God has a heaven and a hell. God has judgment and he has rescue and salvation. Trust in God's rescue and salvation as much as you trust in his wrath. Okay, what was God's promise of blessing? Verse 5, it's listed out individually to Baruch. What a blessing. Listen to this. I will give you your life as a prize of war. How would you like for God to open up the heavens and audibly out loud so you can hear it in your own ears say to you, I will give you your life. You're going to make it. I'm going to take you to heaven. What a precious promise, one-on-one to Baruch. Of course, that's what we have in the gospel. 
that God says it to us. He gives us our lives. It points us to the cross, doesn't it? The prophecy is fulfilled always at the cross. What would be more painful to God than destroying the city of Jerusalem and its temple because of sin? I'll give you the answer, the gospel answer. God the Father destroying God the Son at the cross at Jerusalem because of the sin of the people would be more painful to God. The precious eternal Son of God, whom God the Father loved from all eternity, would need to be broken down and torn down unto death and buried in order for God to do his rescue work in his people and fulfill his covenant blessings to them. God does not take pleasure in destroying Jerusalem. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, as it says in Ezekiel. I listed those for you on the bulletin. How much more the death of the innocent Son of God for the sin of others does not bring God the Father pleasure. We know the big theme in the book of Jeremiah, that God preserves a remnant of people whom he brings back to Zion. They go to exile, they come back home. That's the big theme. It's salvation. It's the hope of us going to heaven. That's the big theme of Jeremiah, that God reserves a certain people for himself. As we know how this is fulfilled in the New Testament of Jesus Christ, that in Christ God preserves a remnant, a small part of humanity namely the church, and he preserves us through the fires of the coming judgment of God. Here's how Jesus put it in Mark 8, 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will find his life, Mark 8, 35. Apostle Paul wrote it this way in Romans eleven five. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Romans eleven five And in Revelation 7, John goes on and on. The number who are sealed are the remnant who God preserves. And those from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, who are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, those are the remnant, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, the ones coming out of the tribulation, coming out of suffering, the ones who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, the ones who before his throne serve him day and night in the temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. These are the ones who will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. These are the ones who the sun will not strike them. The lamb will be their shepherd, we're told. The remnant, the church, the people of God, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will guide them to the springs of living water. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's answer to sufferers who suffer in his name. Let me just draw out three application points to us. We've done our study of this short chapter, setting it in context. We've studied all four appearances of Baruch in the, in the book of Jeremiah and all the scriptures. You know everything there is to know about Baruch. What does it have to do with you? I have three applications. Number one, God sees our suffering and hears our lament. That's one of the takeaway lessons from this chapter. There's a time to work and a time to rest, a time to suffer and a time to ask for help. There's a time to keep going and a time to stop or make a change. We all understand that amount of suffering is ours in this world, but today's study has a specific question. When we reach a point that Baruch reached, can we keep going without all of the insulation, with all of the safety and reliable world that seems to operate according to our preconceived notions of how we thought it works, how we thought God would preserve us. Can we keep going when it doesn't seem as safe anymore? When we have nothing else to rely on except for God, just naked God, is that enough for us? That's the question. 
And suffering turns us upward towards seeking God afresh in that context. And the Bible says God is enough right then. He's always enough. God's takeaway lesson for us in, in this chapter is that. He invites us to a place of suffering and then puts that into the context of God's suffering, into the context of eternity. The suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins is the reorienting vantage point for all of our suffering. What did Jesus suffer? The death on the cross. Why? Because of sins. For whom? Whose sins? For us as his people, his covenant people. These are the things that refocus us correctly as we experience our own suffering and offer up our own lament to God. Oh Lord, how long is a lament to God? Will God get us through this? Yes. How do we know? Because in chapter 45 of Jeremiah, Baruch is already through it. It's a flashback. This is absolutely genius. When the people read the book of Jeremiah over in the exile in Babylon, when the people in the church down through the ages read the book of Jeremiah, they get to chapter 45, and the man to whom the promise is given is already saved in the ways that the promises are describing. Will God get us through it? Oh yes. Look, Baruch is already through it. Baruch is looking back to his younger self, remembering how faithful God was to him in his moment of flashback to the writing of chapter 45, which connects to chapter 36. As the title of the sermon indicates, the lesson of this chapter is that we're encouraged to flash back to our own younger lament. What does that mean? Have you not suffered before? Take yourself back to when you suffered before. You had the same God. What did you learn about God in your previous suffering? We learned that God is faithful. So what lesson ought we bring into our current suffering? The same takeaway lesson from this chapter, that God is faithful. We've learned it in this chapter. We've learned it in other passages. We've learned it in our own experience. We've learned it and learned it and learned it. We're invited to learn it again along with Baruch and learn from God in chapter 45 of Jeremiah and his word that God sees our suffering, he hears our lament, and he will get us through the current bout of suffering too. In fact, we can say our lives are already hidden with Christ and God. We could say it in past tense, he already has gotten you through this. It's just that things aren't set up in chronological order. You're still living in it, but you're already safe. God sees our suffering, hears our lament, bleeds into the second out of three. Second is God promised to you to preserve your life forever through Christ. That's what eternal life is. We talk about eternal life, everlasting life. In order for God to promise Baruch his life, back then, back in the day, back in chapter 36, God would need to then control all of the circumstances in order to ensure that that would happen. He would have to control an enemy invasion, the destruction of an entire city, and all of the results. We serve a God who can do that, no problem. At the end of the book of Jeremiah, we're told about Baruch's pain and God's promise to him in the middle of his pain and suffering, not that the suffering would be removed, but that Baruch would be protected and enabled to outlive the suffering. That's what we're told God does. Baruch would survive, is what we're told. 
to set our suffering in the proper Christian context is to see that God has already given us the answer to our suffering. Heaven. We will outlive whatever we're facing right now. We've already been given everlasting life. We possess it in Christ. How? Through his suffering on the cross for us, through his resurrection together with us. And when we look at our suffering from this perspective, the suffering is dwarfed. Our suffering is meaningful. And from this perspective, our suffering has a terminus. It cannot go on like this forever. There's an end point, says God. And when we realize we have heaven, we must also realize we have God's protections until we get to heaven. We already have his presence. We already have his care. We already have his tender mercy and compassion. He will never leave us and never forsake us. The one who will give us heaven is not going to let us range and roam free, getting ourselves there if we can. He's going to take us all the way home with his powerful hand. Third and last one. Be content and be faithful in the role where God has placed you. God challenged Baruch's ambitions here, and therefore he challenges ours. Some Christians think the important thing is not that God will, God's will gets done, but rather that I get to do it. I want to be the one who gets to do it, some Christians say. Some people want to get the glory, God to get the glory as long as they can also share in some of the limelight. Some Christians will not be involved unless they can lead. And God challenges such ambitions, such sinful ambitions. Instead of attempting great things for God, how about attempting small things for God? Being faithful in small things. Bonhoeffer wrote, when a person has completely given up the idea of making something of himself, then one throws oneself entirely into the arms of God, and then one no longer takes seriously his own suffering. It helps us with our suffering to think about God's plan for us. Everybody knows about Jeremiah. Who's heard of Baruch? So he writes himself into chapter 45. (laughs) Even today, people name their children Jeremiah. I could ask for a show of hands. We don't do that much. Everybody knows Jeremiah. How many know somebody named Baruch? (laughs) Baruch suffered in obscurity, and God challenged that. Are you truly obscure? Jeremiah needed you, Baruch. You were placed there to be accompanying him all along the way in his suffering and his bringing the word of God to that generation and the coming generations. God set it up that way, that Jeremiah needed Baruch. All Jeremiah's need a Baruch. Baruch's are people who are content and faithful to serve out of the limelight. They serve as servants of the servant of the Lord. They're servants of the servant. Baruch's never come on stage and hear the applause. But without Baruch's, the show can't go on. We have a whole hymn, Dare to be a Daniel. Where's the hymn, Can you bear to be a Baruch? How about you? What if God put you into a support role? Can you view that role as vital and accept the assignment? There are plenty of people in the Bible who were unknown in world history but had a vital role in God's kingdom. The role of the mother of Moses, unknown. The only thing she's known for is support to Moses. Her role as the mother of Israel's greatest leader. Was she faithful when called upon? Well, yes. When Moses was a little boy, his life was in danger, and she was called on by God to do something that saved Moses to do what he called, God called him to do later. A vital role. Consider the role of Baruch. 
book of Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah, you would not have the book of Jeremiah if it weren't for what God did through Baruch. When there was a need for the prophet to be supported, for the book to be transcribed, God used Baruch. All of us who benefit from the book of Jeremiah owe a debt of thanks to this one unknown man in world history. Seems likely that the servant Baruch was with Jeremiah the whole time, and we love him for that. As we close, we'll sing in our hymn, we pray to God that he would make each of us content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. Jesus said the same truth a different way. Matthew six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our top priority as Christians is to be the kingdom of God, not making our own mark on this world. So be content and faithful in the role where God has placed you.